whenever you're ready. So welcome back to Seekistan and welcome back to the Seek Strength podcast. So you're about to listen to an interview with Shane Hunt, as you say, one of the strongest people on the planet. Shane um, Hunt's my favorite powerlifter. He's my favorite powerlifter right now. He's yeah. so nice, uh, very articulate. You can see he's taught a lot about his training. A uh, load of interesting stuff in there. Uh, a lot of the kind of the basics behind stuff. There's nothing crazy. Uh, one particular thing I think we're talking about is that kind of the back flexion was very interesting. And he's saying he didn't yeah. really try to get it. Uh, he's definitely cautious of it by the sounds of things. And um, it has its kind of pros and cons, especially at that lockout, which is very interesting that you're kind of, while you may get a little bit better off the floor, it may be uh, an issue at the lockout. The other thing is what? Sorry, what was I saying? I was just saying, if you're watching this video and you're not um, intimately aware of like Shane's technique and how his lifts look, as you're watching this podcast or even at like just before you start watching the podcast, go and look at his Instagram and you'll see technically he's a very, very nice lifter to watch. Like his, his movement is very good to watch. He's massive and jacked as well, um, which, is, which is always beneficial. But if you're a power lifter or you're kind of a developing strength athlete and you're looking to even you might be a well-developed strength athlete and looking to change your technique slightly. He's a very nice technical model for how he lifts. The other interesting thing, and it's the kind of thing that comes up a, a lot recently, is the kind of the auto-regulation there, or the RPE. And so he's getting coached by Josh Bryant, who the name I know of is coached mm-hmm. the most 600-pound benchers, so probably knows a thing or two about benching. Yeah. Uh, so he's saying the basically the numbers on the squat and the bench were very rigid and percentage-based, and they were exactly what he was supposed to do. But then because they're having some issues with the deadlift, they didn't really know where it was at. They were giving that RPE, which I think is an interesting use, yeah. uh, especially for someone as strong as uh, Shane. You know, you, you want to be making sure that you're still pushing him a little bit, but you're not killing yourselves because they didn't know. And they'd obviously just started working together because Shane said he'd gone through a period of just coming in and kind of doing whatever. And he said it wasn't going great mentally and physically. It didn't go phenomenal. Obviously, still incredible numbers because he's a freak of nature, you know. Yeah. But it was very interesting that there was like hard numbers which is something we do talk a lot about. But then it was an interesting use for an RP, an interesting um, programming use for RP for the deadlift where no one knew kind of what was going on uh, at the time because there was kind of a new relationship. Uh, Shane wasn't sure his numbers were and stuff like that. So very interesting on that. Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot to can be learned from, yeah. from the podcast. If as you're going through the podcast, you've other questions you'd love to have had answered by them or if there's interesting talking notes, we really do appreciate you commenting down below. As always, all of Shane's details, if you want to contact Shane, are right down there in the description. Just click, you can go to his Instagram page or his website. Uh, and we appreciate you supporting him as well as you supporting us. Yep, that's, um, if there's any other guests you think would be good, and you think would be a good chat to him, yeah, they're definitely. articulate and, and freaks in nature, leave them in the comments and we'll definitely have a look into it. Okay, so welcome back to the Seek a Strain podcast. If you're uh, watching or listening to this, we have Shane Hunt on the podcast today who has graciously given us a little bit of his time. Uh, Shane, could you give us like a real quick rundown of like who you are in terms of what matters to people and what are your powerlifting numbers, the big one, the people, the ones that people are wondering about? Uh, so my name's Shane Hunt. I've been competing in powerlifting on and off for about 10 years. Uh, I'm right now, I'm ranked number seven in the 275 weight class for raw with no no knee wraps, so just um, knee sleeves and a belt. Uh, my best total is 2160, which is 980 kilograms. And right now, my main goal, I don't know if you asked me that, but my main goal is to push for 
the 275 total record. I'm about 70, 75 kilos away from that. So that's my main goal um, right now. I'm also a strength coach. So I pretty much coach full time. I used to work at a commercial gym. Um, and then during COVID and the pandemic and everything, just all the gym shut down. So I pretty much transitioned fully online with my business. So that's pretty much, uh, that's what I do. I try to get myself stronger and then try to help others get stronger too. Nice. Uh, actually, before we get going, Shane, as well, just in the last part, if someone does want to get coached by you, where would we reach out on Instagram? I think you have a website as well, correct? I do. Yeah, the easiest way is probably just to go to my Instagram and then just go through the uh, my link tree, and I have my coaching website in there. Um, but yeah, you can just type in Hunt Powerlifting just into Google too, and you can Sweet. find me there. And how did you find the transition from kind of online coaching as opposed to the in the gym kind of commercial stuff? It was a big transition for me. Um, usually getting to see my clients at least two or three times a week in person, get to talk to them face to face for 30 minutes to an hour was a big, a big difference with some people with remote coaching where they almost never contact you and you're just kind of assuming they're doing their programming. So I've tried to implement a few different things like weekly check-ins, try to get people to send me videos. But initially I'd have a lot of people that would just sign up and they you'd kind of never hear from them again. You think they're doing the program. So I've tried, it's, it's been a lot on me, I think, to for, like enforce that communication, try to develop a relationship and rapport with someone versus just here, go do this program and run with it, you know? Um, Are you missing any of the in-person stuff? Do you miss that in terms of like job satisfaction? I do. I really do, actually. Um, I had two clients this past summer, and I really do enjoy the hands-on because there is there is an element that, you can just get deeper. You can articulate things to people in a different way when you can touch you can touch them and you can see them, how they move, and you can correct them in real time um, versus trying to do it remotely and kind of everything being a little bit delayed. Um, so I do I do really appreciate having someone in person, but just from like a time a time management sense, it really isn't efficient to be training people all day long and being on your feet all day long too. I mean, it's not that hard of a job. I'm not going to say personal training is – manual labor or anything but when i was working at a commercial gym i'd work you know nine ten hours be on my feet all day and it would definitely affect training whereas now i don't have that extra kind of you know fatigue from just being on my feet all day yeah i know one of the things we talked to stan efferling about was he was talking about it more as like a business model of like you you only have a certain amount of face-to-face -face hours with contact but definitely as a, a model for fatigue and training particularly when you're training as much as you are, like it's, it's a much better model to have something that's remote or that's online rather than it being you in the gym for eight hours a day. Absolutely. Yeah. I used to, I used to try to work out sometimes before my, my, I would start work. So like at 5am and com compared to now, like now I structure my whole day basically around lifting weights. So I try to get two meals in, try to be awake for a few hours. Sleep is way better than it ever was you know, when I was working for somebody else. So that is definitely having that freedom to set your own schedule is huge. I think is huge for recovery mostly. So Shane, what did your schedule look like on like a weekly basis now, or even a daily basis? What's your week look like? Um, I don't want to sound too lazy, um, but for the most part, like I said, I structured the days around training. So it's about, it's about 9am here. I know you guys are a few hours a few hours um ahead right yep. yeah yeah so it's about it's... 2 p.m there right yeah yep. yeah so i'll probably get to i'll probably get to training around 12 12 or 1 that's my usual day i'm awake for about three four or five hours i go train 
Um, and then I try to come home, take care of pretty much all my business in terms of like responding to clients. Uh, I usually have about two to three times during the day that I have structured to go look at my clients and respond to them versus just kind of doing it haphazardly throughout the day. So I try to have like a morning, middle of the day, and then like evening kind of response times. And then from there, it's just, I just try to eat. So it's basically eating and training and then talking to my people and that's it really. And uh, what kind of clients are you dealing with? Is this general kind of health stuff or looking or is it all the way up to kind of other people trying to aspire to similar levels of powerlifting? I wouldn't say I have any lifters that are quite like on my level, um, but I do have, they're mostly our powerlifters, mostly our newer powerlifters. And a lot of it is, a lot of it is working with people who, um, you could call them like general population, but I think they're just younger lifters. They do want to be powerlifters. They are aspiring powerlifters, but they are just younger, the younger generation, you know? And Jane, when but I'm, you get... I'm open to working with anybody, you know? When you get those younger lifters, do you find yourself getting them to do very similar things that you did when you were that age or when you did when you were kind of developing or have you have you kind of changed your approach now where they do something completely different to what you used to do oh i try to have them i was not on much of a program when i was younger i would um i know you guys were looking at some of my old lifting videos in the, the video you guys did and for the most part i was just going and trying to hit PRs every single session, especially when I was really young. And I got away with that for quite a while, but I did have even some injuries even quite, you know, quite early. So I try to get them on, get them a little bit better of a mindset versus like just what kind of program I try to get them in the mindset of using the gym to get stronger, not using the gym to demonstrate your strength. And if you do want to compete and go demonstrate your strength, that is a more measured approach than let's just go impulsively go max out. Cause you feel like it, you know? Yeah, so I'd yeah. say that the philosophy I try to kind of teach them is is a little bit more measured. Shane, I, I just as you mentioned it there, you have some of the best teenager or middle school lifts we've ever seen. You were an absolute beast of a teenager. Was that from playing sports or, or were you just kind of naturally very strong or how did it come about? A little bit um, from sports, but I never played football or any like contact sports. My parents just didn't want me to, and I just, I just sort of listened to them. Even though later on, I did regret that a little bit. Um, but no, I was involved in. I did swimming very young, gymnastics. I did a little. I did a few triathlons when I was younger, and then probably around eleven or twelve is when I got into lifting. I was just doing push-ups and pull-ups at home, and then eventually convinced my parents to get a gym membership. And then probably the videos that you guys saw was about two years after that where I'd been in the gym for about two years. And a lot of people don't believe me when I tell them this, but I literally doubled my body weight from 14 to 15. So from 130 pounds, about 60, 60 kilos, all the way up to you know 120, 260 pounds, 120 Holy kilos shit. in 10 months. And I, I made that happen. Like I did that on purpose. I, I ate everything. I need a pound of cottage cheese every night before bed. I was eating Wendy's, you know, three or four like, cheeseburgers a day like I was eating everything and I got really fat but I did get really strong too I think if I hadn't done that I never would have had the base that I have even now that that built that base for me and uh, even now I mean I weigh I weigh about 122 kilos right now and I, I was I was already 120 kilos 10 years ago so I think that <laughs> you know like that that base really helped me and I've just yeah. con like continuously kind of gotten leaner recomposition the body the body composition um, over those years but 
people are like, oh, how do I get the 200, 200 pounds? It's like, I was 200 pounds when I was 14. You know, like, <laughs> what, what made 14-year-old Shane want to be, you know, nearly 120 kilos? Was it a, did you just say you want to gain as much weight as possible and keep pushing it? Or did you see someone online or were you talking to someone? Or what, what made you do that? Yeah, so on um, on bodybuilding.com was probably the first um, time that I like interacted with other people who were my age. And there were some other people who were my age who were very strong too. And that was probably the first time I ever really came into contact with that because I always thought of myself as pretty strong already. And for, I mean, there was there were some people in high school too that were pretty strong in my high school. Um, like obviously the football players that were pretty strong. But I always something that other people didn't have. Um, not to be like cocky, but I just felt like I, I had that, you know, and I felt like I, it could be cultivated too. I knew I could, it wasn't like I was a finished product. I knew I could get a lot stronger. So I just fell in love with it very early on. I was, um, I kind of went from one extreme to the other. Cause when I, like I said, when I was like 14, I was running a lot. I wanted to have abs. I wanted this like aesthetic um, look. And then eventually I just, I ran into this point where, it's like, I can't progress this. I can't just get leaner indefinitely. And I wanted to, I got, I got to this point where I didn't feel good and I wanted to build myself up versus just cut myself down and try to get whittle myself down leaner and leaner. I thought, well, this, there's no, there's no more progression. I can't do anything with this. So I kind of flipped it the other way, build myself up, get stronger. And there's basically no end to, you know, how strong you can get. How did your parents react to their son doubling their body weight in less than a year? Um, I mean, to a degree, they were supportive because they 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 supplied me with the food. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't have a job um, at the time. I was in high school, so I, all I was doing was going to school. I mean, they were, they were feeding me, so they didn't necessarily think it was the, probably the the best thing to do. They didn't understand it fully, um, but I do think that they they knew I wasn't. I wasn't doing too much to harm my health. Even though I'm not saying it was the healthiest thing. I think I went about it in a semi-healthy way. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> but yeah, they were definitely, they were definitely, I think, surprised because neither one of them, neither one of my parents was ever big into lifting weights. They're both uh, in the military. They're both physically active their whole lives, but neither one of them was, was um, nearly as extreme as, as I am with that one, like just to get as strong as possible. You know, they've never had that. So, Shane, one thing that you're kind of very well noted for, or certainly one of the ways it started popping up on my, you started popping up more and more on my feed years ago, is your insane flexibility. Do you think the mm. fact that you got so big so young and you still had a lot of kind of growing to do, do you think that's part of the reason you maintain such good flexibility, or has it kind of just been something you've always had? Um, well, so I, like I said, I had gymnastics background and when I was in gymnastics, when I was, um, eight or nine years old, I could never do any of the things I can do now. I couldn't do the handstands. I couldn't do the splits. Um, I sort of had to learn those things later on. And a lot of it has like with the splits, like I don't consider myself to be that flexible. Um, but like for the splits, for example, that was all for me, like a big, like mind shift, m mindset shift more than anything else. Like I didn't do, I didn't go like dedicate a bunch of times to mobility or anything like that. I just changed the way that I thought about getting into the split. So instead of it being a passive activity where I'm going to let gravity kind of take me down, I'm going to stretch everything out to the point where I can get down to that position. I thought, um, and this is heavily influenced by Pavel, Pavel Tatsulin. 
he was saying that um, he has these three, I can't remember his like little mantra for stretching, but there's like three, there's three main tenants to it. One is like spread the load. There's something about breathing. I forget what it was, but mostly it's about being active versus being passive. So whenever I'm trying to get into a split, I try to maintain a lot, a higher degree of like active, active in the oppositional muscles. I try to keep them very active to gravity, push me down, rather pull myself down into that position. So I think that's the biggest thing for me was, was just changing the way I thought about doing those things. Um, but I do think I, I do have some amount of, um, when I did gymnastics, it does like enhance the kinesthetic awareness or the body awareness. I think that helps a lot too, because a lot of people, when they try to do the splits, they're like, Oh, I'm going to tear my, I'm going to tear my adductor. I'm going to tear this or that. But I never really feel that. I think I have a very good just sense of when my body is being pushed to the limit and people like people think I'm pushing myself to the limit, but I kind of can feel that I'm not, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm still in control there. So I think that's the biggest thing is just control and, and being active in those positions rather than being passive. Do you feel that helps your lifting any amount? Did you notice any change once you were able to kind of achieve some of those feats? And, and is it something any of your lifters you've ever kind of directed them towards? Or is it something you feel that is not really that important and it's not hugely beneficial? Um, it depends. I don't think that it's uh, an, a requirement. I don't think that it even necessarily makes me more injury injury um i don't think it's necessarily injury prevention i just think that for me it demonstrates a higher level of control and if i can if i have a higher level of control of my body on anything in a way i can translate or transfer that to lifting i just have better control so like for my sumo deadlift um if you look at it it's not even that wide compared to some people on the sumo they really really open up their hips they, their feet are basically touching the plates um, I don't really deadlift like that, even though I could, because I know I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be as strong. So it's not simply reduce range of motion as much as possible, go as wide as possible. Um, there's other, there's other factors that come into play, but I do think, I do think people should be doing, they should be able to do some of those things, but I don't think that everyone should be dedicating an hour every day to mobility work. I think that's where it gets lost. People are like, what stretch should I do to achieve the splits? And I don't, I don't know. I don't do any stretches to achieve the splits. You know, I do, I'll do them randomly every few, every week or so, but I don't, I never train like any specific stretch to do them. If that makes any sense. Absolutely. So Shane, on the subject of like your body awareness and you're obviously very aware of what your positions are and what you're doing. And I think a lot in the last couple of years, back flexion has been a big topic in terms of like deadlifting and a lot of people point out to a lot of very strong people do have some reasonable degree of kind of upper back rounding or flexion in the uh, in the sumo deadlift for example or in deadlifting is it something you consciously went after or is it something just kind of happened where you felt like this position felt the best when I was doing sumo deadlifts how did that kind of how that process come about in regards to that um I wouldn't say that I have an extreme degree of thoracic rounding but there's definitely some yeah and it's mostly just to do with I think the way that you think about or what your scapula does when you deadlift. So when you're deadlifting, you should not, you should definitely not be trying to elevate or even retract your scapula. You should mostly just being, be trying to depress your scapula using the lat to press the scapula. And then there is, you have a weight, it's, it's front loaded, it's in front of you. So there's going to be some degree of that weight probably pulls your shoulder slightly into protraction. 
but mostly if you keep a depressed shoulder blade, that protraction should also be pretty minimal. I think. Um, I don't think that the round the upper the rounding the upper back should be a goal, but it usually will happen under maximal load. But like I said, if the shoulder blade is depressed, I think it's it's pretty minimal the amount of actual like forward roll that you get in the shoulder. Shane, is there? Can you kind of pinpoint a time in your career or like a certain weight you started lifting when that kind of slightly changed? So I know with, with a lot of people when they're developing their their deadlift technique or they're starting to get stronger, most of the time we're thinking about like shoulders straight or shoulders neutral, back, mid back and upper back just flat. Can you think of a time, was it when you started competing as a senior or can you even remember a time when now suddenly you'll just allow those shoulders come forward a small bit more? Um, I think, uh, I think it happens unintentionally, but usually just under, like I said, under the maximal load, it, it happens to a lot of people, even if they don't want it to, um, they, it, the weight just will pull, it will pull the shoulder blades down. And some people will even lock their deadlifts out and it almost looks like they got shorter. Like their torso yeah. is like, is now compressed a little bit and their shoulders are back. They did lock out, but it's almost like they're now like a little bit compressed um, I can't think of a specific time. I will say that when I used to pull conventional, I was a lot more rounded in my entire back. My entire back was, was more rounded. I have a, a meet video from, I think, 20, 2013, and I, I use a static start on a deadlift. So a lot of people, they'll drop their hips to initiate. Um, and back in the day, I just sort of grabbed the bar, set my hips where they were, and I just deadlifted from there. And I start like my starting position, like my back just looks like this. I guess like a C almost like it just it's and I got away with it. I mean, I didn't necessarily get hurt from doing that. Um, but I think just as I got more and more efficient, I realized that for one, sumo is more efficient. And then eventually you get to doing hook grip. And then with the hook grip, I think there is a, it is much easier to do what you're saying because you have you already have that slightly um, internally rotated shoulder versus really externally rotating the shoulder. So it's much easier to let the shoulders roll forward um, and protract. And that can allow you a little bit um, – it can allow you to get a better position if you let the shoulders roll forward, protract. You can get your hips probably a little bit closer to the bar, um, maybe a little bit more upright. Even though you're slightly rounded, you're still overall more upright, your torso. And the hips are closer to the bar, so you can generate more, more force. But a lot of times when people do that, they, they struggle with lockout because if you give too much – you kind of run out of room and then you have no space to still lock out. How do you approach this topic with your lifters? You're coaching some of the more kind of powerlifting oriented lifters. Well, I try, I try to get people to really solidify which, which grip they want to use. And in general, if people are pulling sumo, they should be using hook grip. Um, that's, that's just, that might, that might be a little extreme, but that's, that's just my opinion. If you're going to be a sumo deadlifter, you should, you should just switch to hook grip and that's mostly due to just rotation that's going to occur between the unbalanced shoulders and the, the sumo position is going to punish you more for it. Um, but yeah, I would say that um, it's not a huge issue. I don't think it's a huge issue for people because a lot of people don't usually what will happen is they'll just have lockout issues. If they do it too much, the, the lockout will suffer, but I haven't seen very many people have actual injuries. I'm sure it can't happen. But I, ha I don't know if you guys have seen either, like a lot of injuries actually come or present themselves in the upper back from thoracic rounding. Um, I, haven't, I haven't seen much 
much in the in the way of like injuries. So I, it's not something it's not something I really try to correct very much. Yeah, in most people. I know any of the ones we've come across have been like lower to mid back, and yeah. their back is so drastically weak, so much drastically weaker than everything else. Anyway, that it was always going to be a problem area, you know. Um, any right. case I can think of definitely hasn't been because of this, like this where the shoulders are slightly forward. It might be the shoulders are slightly forward, and their mid back is poor, and their lower back is poor, and they're compensating in other ways anyway. Right, right. Uh, Shane, I think another like very much a technical nuance that you're well known for is is barefoot or, or training a lot of time in your mm. bare feet. Um, and it, it's something that we're both very, very interested in. Could you just talk to us about maybe why you started training in barefoot or started moving more in that direction um, and what it kind of allows you to do? So I will say back 10 years ago when I first started lifting, really, I always had the like intuition that I wanted my feet to be as close to the ground as possible. And I used to get in trouble at this commercial gym all the time because I would just take my shoes off and just lift in my socks. And they would always be, you know, put your shoes on. You can't do that. And they, they would always get mad at me. Um, but I always knew, like squat and deadlift specifically, I was always stronger when I didn't wear shoes. And I was just wearing running shoes almost all the time back then anyway. So eventually I bought a pair of, I think they were called New Balance Minimus shoes. And they were like a trail shoe, very hard sole, very minimal heel. Maybe a little bit of a heel, but barely. And I lifted in those for a long time. But... I think the main thing is just you want uh, you don't want a shoe that compresses, especially if you're trying to generate a lot of force and the feet are are your base. We're rooting you to the ground. So if you're trying to root into something that's very soft and, you know, it's compressing in, in different places and it's inconsistently compressing where you don't want it to. Um, you're just going to you're going to have a lot of instability that way. So I always wanted to be barefoot pretty much. And if you look at videos from the last like eight, eight, nine years, I've pretty much been training um in bare feet a lot of the times even if i'm not barefoot i'm using i use the vivos the barefoot shoes and i started wearing those in 2018 i believe and a lot of people don't know but i actually broke my my leg in 2017 and it required three surgeries and that was a big thing where i had to rebuild like the strength of my foot i pretty much lost the whole arch in my foot my ankle would barely bend at all back then so i think being barefoot really helped me then in rebuilding my foot and rebuilding the strength and everything mobility in the ankle everything like that but yeah i think humans just weren't aren't supposed to wear shoes basically so did you ever try any kind of weightlifting shoes or any kind of uh shoes with a higher heel for your squat or anything like that or did you always just find that the the barefoot was in a much better way for you i did yeah so a lot of people um a lot of powerlifters you know back 10 years ago they all started wearing the heel shoes, and they still do. Um, and obviously, for weightlifting, I think it's a different story. There's a massive benefit, obviously, that you get from wearing the heel shoe. Um, but I think for powerlifting, I think it's a little bit oversold. I don't think you need the heel shoe to squat. And I definitely don't think you need them to bench. People will bench them too. Um, and I, I, I've used them. I have the I have the Romalio twos. I think I got those back in 20, 2016. And I have the, I think they're the Pendlay Dewins. Like oh, one yeah. of the, okay. my, my first ever pair of heeled shoes were the, the Pendleys. Um, they're old. Those are, those are really old. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I've used them before. I don't dislike them. 
but I have really wide feet. So I noticed that almost all shoes and weightlifting shoes, especially have a very narrow toe box. And I just don't like, I don't like my toes all being um, compressed and pushed together like that. I like to be able to spread the toes out, really use, feel the toes and feel the big toe. So that's one of the biggest reasons that I, uh, I prefer the bare feet over the heels. I know another person who's a big proponent of the barefoot is Aaron Harshig of Squat University. And I've, I've seen you working with him in the past. Uh, was that working through a back injury, Shane, or, or what was that, what were you working with him on? Um, we, we've sort of bounced some ideas back and forth off each other. We've never like officially, I never hired him like for any like pain management or anything like that. But we did, uh, we did bounce a few ideas off of one another. Right now, with my back, a lot of people uh, reached out to me. They're like, you know, I hope you feel better, this and that. And it's like I'm not, I'm not crippled in the sense of like I, you know, can't walk. I squatted, I squatted 250 kilos a few weeks ago for a pretty easy set of five, and it's just like this aggravating pain that I know will flare back up. But it's not like I can't lift weights. It's not like I'm like yeah. bedridden and can barely walk. It's not like that uh, when I say I'm injured. But it is, I'm injured in the sense of I can't train to the capacity i want to train because i know it'll just come back that flare up and eventually it does get to the point where it's like i can barely walk because it does hurt so bad but it, i know it will dissipate if i just don't do those things that aggravate it you know and what, are those but what i've been doing oh sorry no go for it that's exactly what i was wondering i've been digging into uh some of ben patrick stuff knees over toes guy and just some of the end range work and i know for a fact that i've been um, neglecting my ql and just a lot of the just a lot of those things that he has people do on the back extension, even just with my body weight. I mean, they just, they light my back up and I know, and not in a bad way, not in a way that's like heavy squats and deadlifts. They like, just like muscularly, I can tell those muscles have been neglected because I've never taken them through those ranges of motion. So just doing simple things like the, uh, the QL side bend, the um, back extension with one leg under one leg uh, out, one leg in under the, the pad. Um, even just doing those two things for about the past week, I felt a massive, a massive difference in how I just feel day to day. And I haven't pushed any like heavy squats and deadlifts. I'm not going to for a while, but I do think if I maintain, I'm going to probably buy a back extension for my house too. But I think if I maintain doing those things, I think it's going to make a, a really big difference. So. Yeah. I think everyone can learn from that in, in that, that if somebody who thinks doing light squats is two fifty for an easy set of five, uh, we'll get some value from doing some body weight exercises on a back extension. Uh, I think everyone can get some value from them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the back extension is definitely, uh, it's slept on. Cause I used to think it was kind of a worthless machine. I worked at a commercial gym. We had one and I would almost never have anyone do it. I was like, you know, it's, it's a silly machine. We can, tr I was always thinking it was for, like for the hamstrings and the glutes. I'm like, it doesn't even do anything. Um, but now I think Ben Patrick has really changed a lot of people's view on, on that apparatus i think it's invaluable almost so shane in terms of um you said the last couple of months you've been taking it easy you know you can see on your instagram you're doing a lot of like rock runs or kind of uh like an off season almost is that solely because the you're trying to fix your back injury or is it how you structure your training every year most years is that kind of like do you take always take a, a dedicated off season like how would you kind of approach that year-long programming Right. So I started working with Josh, Josh Bryant, about nine months ago now, I want to say, right at the beginning of October. Maybe not quite nine months, but seven or eight months we've been working together. And 
he had me doing the rucks almost i wanted to do the rucks i asked him if he could do them but we started doing those almost immediately and i was about four months out from my last meet when we started and i think that they're so general that um they did help me a lot mostly in just the form of conditioning and they got me out of the gym so i'm one that i want to be in the gym almost every single day but Josh wanted me to lift four days a week. And I knew that wasn't going to work unless I had something else that was pretty difficult to do. So when I rucked, I used to go for about two hours or so. I'll go about three to five miles. And that gives me kind of like the same mental just stimulus that the gym gives me. Something difficult that I don't really want to do, that I have to go do. And then when I get done with it, I feel better. I feel accomplished. Um, but I do think there's the very general aspect of just walking, especially loaded walking, really does help. Like, when I competed two or three months ago, I could have, I could have competed twice that day. Like I felt like I had so much conditioning and I felt like I just, I did not tire out. Whereas at most meets, I feel like by the time we get a deadlift, I'm pretty, I'm pretty gassed. I'm pretty, I'm pretty tired. So I think the rucking for one got me out of the gym. And for two, it, uh, it just really improved my conditioning a lot. But like you said, it's it's not specific to lifting really. Um, at all what kind of waist rock are you using what kind of vests are you uh, adding on top of yourself it's a it's just it's a titan fitness it's 50 pounds and it's just wow. evenly dispersed front front to back um i've seen some people that have the whole backpack with all the weights in the back but yeah. it seems to me like for posture you'd want it evenly balanced so i try to really maintain good posture maintain good breathing nasal breathing the whole time when i'm doing those so what you're saying is you're really just preparing to be 310 pounds for sometime in the next couple of years. Yeah. So I guess when I very first saw anyone doing rucking, I saw Tom. I don't know if you guys know Tom, Tom Havilland. Oh, yes. You guys you made a video about him too, right? Uh, that was you? Zach. I think Zach made that video. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he is on a whole different level. Like he doesn't even seem like he's a human being, but I think one of the things that he said was that, yeah, he uses the ruck to prepare himself to weigh more. So if he's walking around and he weighs 350 pounds wearing a 70 pound ruck, he weighs walking around at 420 pounds. Then when he gets up to, you know, 370, 380, it's going to feel like no big deal because he's weighed, he's weighed more than that in the past, you know? So I think it definitely helps you acclimate to those, those heavier weights. Yeah. And how has your training changed since you started working with Josh? Has it changed drastically or is it just kind of the the smaller details that he's refined, do you think? Well, it's more conservative for sure. We don't, um, Josh is really big on the, um, like I was saying before, like being strong at the meet, demonstrating strength at the meet. So he was saying to me, we only need to be strong, you know, two or three times a year, like strong, strong, like our absolute strongest twice a year. So most of our training is pretty submaximal, pretty conservative. And for the most part in the off season, it's very, very general. So we were doing a lot of farmers carries, a lot of yoke walks, a lot of very, very light deadlifts all the way up until maybe six weeks out from the meet. And then we threw in some heavy deadlifts, some heavy squats. But for the most part, it was all, it was all a lot of work, a lot of volume, but nothing heavy in the gym. Do you think that's a mistake a lot of powerlifters make? Because it's something we preach a lot and especially powerlifters we coach is that you don't always have to be near your maxes. You don't always have to be doing heavy singles all year round or heavy for that moment. You know, it's, it's, uh, and it's something, if the better they are, the actually harder it is for them to kind of just let go for a few weeks of their, their 90% capabilities, you know, and, and do some more 
a lot of general capacity. Do you think it's something more powerlifters could use in their training, or do you think it's just a different method that works just as well? I think it's interesting because right now, like this um, this time in powerlifting, you have a lot of people that are hyper specific and they train singles year round, and it's interesting because a lot of people get really great success from it. Um, you see a lot of these lifters, like I don't know if you guys follow uh, like Joey Flex and his athletes, but he coaches and it's like they do year round, they do singles year round. They seem like they're seemingly pretty heavy. They're not just like, you know, they're not sandbag singles. They're pretty, they're pretty, you know, up there singles. They do them year round. They train pretty high volume. They train semi high intensity seemingly all year round and they, they have great success with it. So I think there's a lot of different ways to go about it. But I do think that people do get caught up in always having to demonstrate your, their strength. But there's nothing, I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with lifting heavy. And some people can do it a lot better than others. Um, like if you, watch, if you watch Ashton Ruska go into the gym and squat 705 for a single and it's at six, for him that's absolutely nothing. You know, but it's still 705 pounds. But for, but for him, he can deadlift the next day. He can deadlift two days later. It's like it, it did nothing to him. But it's yeah. because he's built himself to that point over years and years and years. People don't realize. So I think um, there are people that can and need to train that way. But I think also a lot of people can get away with training a lot more generally, um, kind of the way I train. And I think there's also something to be said for like the limb lengths. So I'm not built to be a power lifter by any means. I'm six feet tall. I have a six, seven wingspan. Um, I'm built to be like a, a javelin thrower or something, you know. But someone who is more built to just be a powerlifter, someone who is a little bit stockier, a little bit shorter, shorter limbs, they can probably get away with a higher frequency and higher intensity training from the power lifts because I think the lifts aren't as taxing on their bodies. Not as They don't beat their bodies up as much. People with really long arms, for example, aren't going to be able to low bar squat twice a week probably. They just probably aren't going to be able to do it without having a lot of shoulder and elbow and wrist issues. But if you have shorter arms, you're more compact – you might be able to get away with that no issue squat three times a week, you know, low bar squatting three times a week. Shane, along the lines of your programming and what works for you, like when I asked a few people in uh, our members and stuff, if they wanted to ask questions, uh, something that came up very frequently is does Shane use RP or does Shane program and period is out and just stick to percentage based or whatever? What like what is it for you? Do you do you use auto regulation and RP, or do you tend to get a program and stick to it? Um, well, Josh will give me a bit of both, so a lot of the work will be percentage based. Um, but a lot of times, whenever he has me do singles on the main movements, it will be RP. He'll have okay. let me use the RP. Um, so I'm thinking most of my most of my heavy deadlifts that I did for my last meat prep were all based on RPE. And then for the squats, I'm like, I couldn't tell you exactly why he did this. I like not knowing. I like kind of just executing and not knowing. Um, but my, most of my squats, he did call the weights. He would say, go squat 705 for two, go squat an exact weight. He would tell me to do it. And the deadlifts, I think because we didn't exactly know where they were, uh, where the squat, we had a much better idea exactly where it was. The deadlift was a little bit more, gray we didn't know exactly how strong it was he would leave that a little bit more to up to me and give me like rp8 single um or a double at eight something like that but the squat and the bench honestly he was much more rigid with either just a percentage or just a raw number that he would have me 
go in and do that day. Is that similar to what you would have done before that? Before Josh? So to be honest, before, um, there was probably a good six months or so of training where I was just, I would, I was just going in and doing whatever I wanted to do. Um, for, I competed last September in Kansas city and it was probably one of my worst meets ever from a mentality perspective. Um, I didn't, I didn't do terribly. Like in the total, I totaled 2,028 pounds, 920 kilos. It was okay. But my whole mentality, that whole meat prep was, was full. Um, I hit a, I hit an all time squat PR maybe about a month out, which absolute grinder. And that's mostly what my training was, was like go into the gym, try to lift as heavy as possible and then, and then get out. And I just, by the time I got to the meet, I was just so broken down and I had done way heavier stuff in the gym than I did in the meet, which is never how you want it to be, you know? So I think the way that I'm training now is much, is much more efficient. It saves my body. And I, I trust it a lot more because, um, for me, not having a coach, I'm going to, I'm going to resort, revert back to whatever I want to do. And that's going to usually be just go lift as heavy as possible. Uh, just to change a little bit direction. So you, you talk a lot about nasal breathing and there's one of your videos just watching recently before prep that you had kind of a physical therapist or, or a chiropractor or something similar. Do you do a lot of self-care and I suppose, quote unquote, recovery work? You know, do you do any ice baths or regular massages or anything frequently like that? No, I will get a massage every uh, once in a while, kind of as needed. Um, but I can't really justify doing it that frequently because I don't think it does that much. It's mostly just like a relaxation thing for me. Um, the cold therapy, I do think there's a lot of uh, benefit there, but I don't have a good setup to take like ice baths. So I will take contrast showers, but they don't, they honestly don't get cold enough, but I'll, I'll do hot and cold showers. Um, I'd say the main thing, that I do that's like a, any kind of like actual recovery modalities. I just get my girlfriend to walk on me. Just get her to walk on me for like 10, 15 minutes. Stuff on my neck, my head, my upper back, my lower back, um, hamstrings, glutes, just walk all, like, all over my back and stuff. I think that's like the biggest thing. Um, like if you had to pick one thing that I actually do, besides that, it's just like eat food, sleep, and drink water. Yeah. You know, and I think the rucking too. The rucking is huge because in between my heavy sessions, I go and walk for a long duration and it's not that taxing, but it is a lot of just circulation and cardio that's pumping nutrients around. And then uh, I think that helps me uh, prepare for the next day, shake, shake the fatigue off a little bit. One thing, Jane, I've seen you talk about a good bit is your sleep and like the, the fact you're going for a sleep study or I think you're getting a CPAP. Uh, is that something that's very recent that's after popping up that sleep become an issue or is it something you've kind of worked against the whole time? So I think I started developing sleep apnea when I was around 21 years old when I got to around 240 pounds. And for me, it's like a threshold of body weight. So when I get to a certain size, when my neck gets to a certain girth, I start having issues with sleep. And I think it's around 250, 240, 250 is just the body weight. And then somewhere around like a 19, 20 inch neck is when everything just starts to go out the window. So I dealt with that for a few years, about a year ago. Now I did go get a sleep study. I got a CPAP and I can't use it. So I did have a CPAP for about three months, tried to use it very diligently, but it is, it's one of the hardest things. I would just, I would always take it off. I would never have it on when I woke up, I would have taken it off. 
And um, it's one thing that if you talk to any of like the strong men, any of the big boy powerlifters, they all have sleep apnea, every single one of them. Yeah. Um, if you're 300 pounds, you have sleep apnea, probably if you're 250, you know? So it's, it's a pretty big issue. The biggest thing that I've found lately is to really get on the nasal breathing, starting to do nasal breathing exercises. And a lot of it has to do with your tongue posture too. So if your tongue falls into the back of your throat when you're sleeping, you're going to start snoring. So trying to keep um, good tongue posture, nasal breathing throughout the night, I think that has helped me tremendously. So I've pretty much gotten rid of the sleep apnea um, a little bit on my own because the CPAP was, it wasn't going to work. There was no way. There, there's a great book actually, Shane. I don't know if you've read it. It's called Jaws. It's written by an evolutionary biologist and a dental surgeon. And they talk a lot about that mm. posture. Um, there's an audio book as well. It's very, very interesting. Um, it's very interesting that you got rid of it by changing your posture because they mentioned that in the book as well that a lot of sleep apnea happens in kids because they're just mouth breathing you know if you look at kind of young kids they're just like like this in their bed yeah. you know it's, it's it's not good um so you, you do you do a lot of that kind of nasal breathing what kind of stuff are you doing what kind of exercises were you doing was it just kind of like semi-meditation kind of stuff or um there's a there's a book called the oxygen advantage by patrick McEwen. And he talks about, there's a few different things I do. I try to do the box breathing before bed. And then overall, just like a very like general practice is to try to reduce breathing volume pretty much at all times. So you're not, you don't want to breathe more than you need to. I think they say the average person or the average American maybe like takes like 16 to 20 breaths per minute. And you really only need about six to eight breaths per minute or six to 10 breaths per minute. So people are just breathing unnecessarily more than they need to. And that stresses out the respiratory system, which kind of stresses out. There's a cascade of effects that just leads to chronic stress throughout the rest of the body. Um, but I'll definitely need to look into that book that you mentioned. You said it's called Jaws. I'll send it to you after. I'll, I'll drop it over on Instagram. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Jaws. yeah, yeah. I, need, I need to look into that. Very All that stuff is so fascinating because like you said, it mostly has to do with how we developed as kids. Mm. That's going to pretty much tell a story the rest of your life. You can do some things, but that's pretty much going to tell the story, you know, Yeah. how you developed being 120 kilos and you're 15 helps as well. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so one thing, Shane, as a bit of a, a shift in topic again, you're really well known for having a massive strict press or definitely uh, you're well known in our kind of group as you're a powerlifter with a very, very big strict press. Was strict press always something for you that you just wanted to be good at? It's not necessarily a competition lift, but you wanted bigger numbers or is it something that it makes your bench press better or you find it makes your bench press better and so you wanted to just keep training it? Um, no, I think um, it can make your bench press stronger if you have a very weak strict press, right? If you're, if you're very deficient shoulders and they're overly weak compared to like your chest and triceps, then maybe bringing them up will help your bench press. Um, but any time that you dedicate time that you could be like I'm going to take time that I could be bench pressing. And I'm going to go overhead press. I'm giving resources to the overhead press that I'm not giving to the bench press, basically time recovery, you know, adaptation, everything like that. So I think that um, it's not going to directly help your bench press, but it is probably the truest form of just pressing strength uh, that you can't really, you can't minimize range of motion very much. There's not really much you can do to, to quote unquote, cheat the movement to make it easier um so i think that's the reason i've always liked it because it's just so such a difficult thing to do 
and then just to stand there and put weight over your head i mean what else, no, nothing else is like that there's no other exercise like that uh, even no the bench idea. press <laughs> I, I think the bench press is pretty lame honestly uh, you're lay you're laying on a bench you're laying you're laying there pushing something off you but the squat and deadlift you're standing on your feet you're lifting weights same as overhead press you're standing on your feet and you're lifting weights like it's makes sense to me like it's it's active you know your whole body has to be active yeah that's a good way of thinking about it actually yeah absolutely it that's actually very useful because we're constantly trying to get weightlifters excited about strict pressing like for weightlifters it just makes such a difference if they are strict pressing if they do mm. some strict press they all have terrible strict presses they all need to put 40 percent onto their strict press so that might be a it might be a valid argument to try and get them to improve theirs well, I was watching years, years and years ago, I was watching Klokov and his pressing strength is just off the charts. I mean, I think he did 160 kilos for a double or triple, just strict, you know, normal press. And then he did 125 for four or five behind the neck press, like snatch grip behind the neck press. It's like, and he weighs a hundred, you know, he weighs 50 pounds less than me. It's like, what? Yeah. It doesn't even make sense. Did he press I can't even comprehend those numbers. I think so. Yeah. I think his best is 172 which is on, on strict press yeah so that's about 380 pounds uh, yeah it's very yeah it's very <sighs> close yeah it's insane but then you see his jerk and his jerk is just phenomenally fast yeah and like mm. that's it's no miss like it's no accident that it's so fast if you can strict press 170 you can push press 220 he's missed jerks yeah. at like 275 you know like it's just insane so shane what's um What's the what's kind of the next few months looking like for you in terms of training and competition, or is it just kind of fix the back and then see what happens? Oh uh, yeah, so I'm very optimistic about the back. I think that now that I've found something um, that I feel like I can be productive with, like I can progress, I think it will. For one, it'll help me just mentally knowing I'm doing something that's step in the right direction, not just waiting for it to get better. But I'm about I think I'm 19 weeks out from my next meet. So it's not too far, but we still have enough time, I think, to kind of get the back right and then start to push. Um, but the goal is to push as high as I can, like I said, into the 275, um, into that kind of uncharted territory into the 275s. So right now I'm looking at about probably – I have huge goals, but a 2,300-pound total is the goal for that meet, which would take somewhere around like 800 – 525-ish, and then mid-900-pound deadlift. Very nice. Sick numbers. Yeah, it's insane. Um, do you see yourself sticking in that 275 weight class pretty much forever, Shane, or do you have any do you have any thoughts or notions about dropping down or going up? Yeah, actually, it's interesting because probably both. I'll probably go up and go down. So with the sleep apnea and just with um, with heart health and everything like that, Obviously, you don't want to be too big for too long, but I do have goals that I want to break the all-time total record in powerlifting, which right now is 2485. So I would like to have the highest total of all time, and that would definitely take me weighing at least 300 pounds, maybe even more. Um, but right now, I want to do what I can in the 275 weight class. I'm going to, I'm going to stay here as long as I need to, basically, to, to do what I need to do. And then I see myself going up, doing what I need to do at 308 and then kind of not retiring, but at least retiring from those weight classes and probably coming down um, for health reasons and probably right around probably about five years from now when I'm 30 is when I'll probably be done being that big, I would assume, or 
I predict probably around then as far as come back down to 250-ish. Can still compete for sure. Um, 242, see what I could do there. I'm definitely way too tall for the weight class, but I do think I could still do I could still do some damage in the two the two forty twos. Um I could probably cut down right now to two forty two from hovering around two sixty, two sixty five body weight. So if I cut down to two forty two right now, I'd already be pretty competitive. So I think especially just getting stronger and stronger over the next few years, uh, I might be able to really push for a big total at two forty two down the line. But mostly right. health reasons would be that I wouldn't want to stay too big for too long. Yeah, you don't want to stay there for uh you don't want to be the 15 years over 300 pounds like it's it's uh they're not good recipes for for longevity yeah the heart does not like that no. the heart does not so shane we promised our kind of members group that we'd ask you one or two of their questions so i think there are just as one or two there that they're they're wondering yeah so up first right so rob is asking do you ever chase like one or two kilo pbs or do you ever chase these kind of small incremental things um, and if so, how do you stay motivated when that, that goal is small? Um, to be honest, no. Um, <laughs> so, I, I had a feeling that's what the answer is going to be. <laughs> it's great to hear. So I'm, I kind of am in, um, I kind of do get in the bad habit of, I want big PRs. Um, but it, it would depend, it would, it would kind of depend. But anything under, definitely nothing under two and a half kilos, but really like five kilos, I would say is my minimum. Like I don't even want a PR unless it's five kilos high, heavier than my past, my last one. <laughs> okay. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. When I heard you were going for a, a 75 kilo increase on your total, I was like, yeah, it's probably not going to be a one or a two kilo, kilo jump to get there. Uh, eventually, eventually, maybe I will get to that point. But fingers crossed, we keep hitting some huge PRs. Sweet. The next question then is, when you bench press 500 pounds, how many days a week were you bench pressing? Mm. So my first 500 pound bench was back in last August. And I was probably bench pressing three or four times a week. And then during in between meat preps, I didn't hit 500 for quite a while. I even lost a good bit of body weight. And I definitely couldn't have done it for a little while when I was skinnier. Um, but then when I did it for the second time and it was considerably easier, I did it a bunch of times this year and I was benching about twice a week. So I think Josh, um, a lot of people don't know, but Josh Bryant has coached the most 600 pound bench pressers ever of all time. And he's not a fan of super high frequency. He does not like to bench three, four five times a week, which a lot of the, a lot of the USAPL guys, a lot of like the natty guys these days, it's like, that's the. That's the, the MO. They bench every day almost. And I definitely could not get away with that. So I think for me, having like one heavy day and then one higher volume rep day is optimal. Where my shoulders, my elbows, everything doesn't get too beat up. I have about three days in between each session for recovery. And I can still train everything else enough. Because I think a big part of my bench press is having really strong upper back. So I have to be training pull-ups and rows really heavy alongside the bench press to really maximize. Nice. So twice, I'd say twice a week is for me is optimal, but it's gonna it's gonna differ for everybody. Ideal. And then the last one, um, we'll pick is this from James, and he's asking, how would you recommend programming when you want to attack both bench press and strict press? I would um I would prioritize one for sure. I wouldn't. I mean, you can't really prioritize both. 
So I would use the overhead press as like the secondary movement. And for me, what I would probably do is probably maintain twice a week of, of both of those movements, but I probably wouldn't do them always on the same days. I'm trying to think how would I do that? I would probably have one day where I had them both in the same day. And then I, I would break this other two sessions up. They were, they were on different days. So basically got three presses in three pressing total between the two um, per week, but they had about two days rest in between each one. And one of them, I would double up and do them both. But basically, I mean, it's going to be really like, I, I would never train the overhead press to the point of like peaking and maxing it out. If that makes sense. Whereas the bench press, I would spend a lot of time trying to peak it and actually max out the overhead press. I'm never going to compete in. So I wouldn't put that much emphasis into training it in that way. I would be we're using it more to build muscle, if that makes sense. Perfect sense. Absolutely. Yep. Shane, we really appreciate your time. Yep. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I uh, appreciate you guys. It was a great time. So just once again more, where is the best place if people want to see Shane Hunt, get coached by Shane Hunt, figure out all the things you're talking about here? Where's the best place to find you? Right. Um, Instagram, just go. Th Instagram is probably the best way. Hunt powerlifting. Um, it's the same on. It's pretty much the same on. Uh, I guess it's not TikTok. I'm like Shane. Shane the Hunt. No one cares about TikTok though. Um, Instagram and then my website. I would say the best places to find me. Because especially if you want to get in contact with me um, through the website. I have a little uh, all the way at the bottom little email link. You can shoot me an email for training inquiries. Sweet. Brilliant. Thanks, Shane. Thank you.